Welcome to Next Economy Now. The goal of this podcast series is to highlight the leaders who are taking a regenerative, bioregional, equitable, democratic, racially just, and whole systems approach to creating the new economy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Next Economy Now podcast. Next Economy is an impact consulting firm, and what we care about is supporting business as a force for good. And you're listening to our podcast where we interview leaders who are creating a world, creating an economy, supporting a cultural shift that creates an economy that can benefit all. And this is going to be our cultural series where we're going to talk to leaders and change agents for how to create a better culture. And I'm so happy to have Andrew Gibbons with us because what I've noticed in my life is that when I connect to my body, then that's the first place to to be self-connected, to be creating change and being able to empathize with others, to be able to navigate my needs, navigate their needs. I have to start with my self-connection and sometimes living in this world, I'm just living in my head, but actually there's a whole body there. <laughs> I'm really glad to be able to explore the that dimension with Andrew. So Andrew, would you like to Say a little bit about yourself to people who might not know about you. And I want you to describe your work because I think you'll be a better person to describe film in Christ than I am. <laughs> well, first, I just want to say thanks, Phoenix, so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to, to spend this time with you. My name is Andrew Gibbons. And what I do in life is that I am a Feldenkrais teacher. And that means that I am really involved in the world of teaching people better movement, coordination, and self-awareness. I've done this full-time for the last 23 years or so. I started out in life as a classical pianist. As a teenager and in my early 20s, I went to a conservatory in New York City for classical piano. And that was really the avenue of how I got into this particular method because mm. I had an injury to my hand from the way that I played piano. So I had a kind of an overuse injury or a, or a bad a bad use of my hand injury. And Feldenkrais was really the way I stayed out of the doctor's office or the surgeon's office. It was something that for for me was this kind of lifesaver when I discovered it, even though I had I had no idea what it was. My first experience with the Feldenkrais method just happened to be I was away from home for the first time at a music festival up at Tanglewood, Massachusetts. I was in the high school program and they offered a, a kind of like a posture workshop. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure they said it, you know, it will use the Feldenkrais method to teach you better posture or whatever the, the words were in the description. I had no idea what it was, but I knew my posture was pretty terrible. I had spent a lot of time in a practice room that summer learning the limits of my abilities, <laughs> the keyboard, even though I was trying to expand them. And I was really encouraged by what I found because the method really contained nothing but a practical experiential path for learning how to coordinate your body better and not through some crucible of 
contortive stretching or exercise or where I had to really almost harm myself to get better, right? Where I had to do something beyond my ability to, to somehow get better. And it also didn't have any strange or fuzzy language. There wasn't anything I needed to believe in. It was just based on exploring in a very kind of structured, rigorous way how movement and coordination can be learned in the first place. I think for most people, their experience of movement in their body, either they're, you know, they're athletic or they're artistic, right? They they learn to dance when they're young or they they play sports when they're young. And that's where they they discover if they're good at baseball or they they love to break dance or they love hip hop or, or whatever it is. But usually most of us are just trying to get lucky. We're <laughs> we're trying to find out that, oh, I'm really good at this. And with me, classical music was something I discovered I really loved. But I also discovered I was not very good at it. I was a late starter and I was a pretty slow learner, but I, I loved music and I was very musical. But my technical foundation at the piano was pretty was pretty terrible. And what I really found in the Feldenkrais method was not some sort of exercise methodology, but it really was a kind of almost a a learning, a practical learning philosophy is how do you go about creating the conditions for improvement? Mm -hmm. Most people, if you were to somehow put a spy camera into a little music practice room, or you follow somebody around secretly in the gym and you watched how they treat themselves when they think they're practicing or doing something, it is not a pretty sight. There's a lot of kind of certainly repetition. Everybody knows you need you need repetition to get better and better at something. But there's not necessarily a patience or an intelligence in the way people approach their repetition. If you've ever heard a, a sibling or, or somebody practicing the piano next door, it sounds like some serious drudgery. It's not a terribly musical experience all the time. And what I found with Feldenkrais was that there was a really kind of intelligent conversation, not just about how movement works not just about sort of anatomy and physiology, but how a person actually teaches themselves in a patient and holistic way so that they really treat the quality of attention that they bring to the activity just as importantly as the activity itself. Yeah, and I, I want to say this because I I think like a lot of people, and my, I, I learned about Feldenkrais when I was trying to deal with something that was difficult. Like, I want to stand up straighter. And actually, I, I've done it for different times for, I think, starting in the mid-2000s. But then what happened a couple of years ago is that I had this issue with um, a hip. And what I noticed is that I could go to different places and get it improved, but then it would come back. And Feldenkrais was the mythology or way of learning how to not create the pain, like knowing what created right. it. And so that I feel like that's rare to learn something that helps you. That There's a lot of things that can help you fix, but something that can actually help you function at a higher state. And I come in for, could you give me less pain? Could you help fix this problem? But then what I, why it fascinates me and why I want is because I get into this other state where when I have that alignment and everything, I feel graceful. I feel like my mood has changed. And that mood and that change is a qualitative shift. And to me, that self-connection and that the experience of performing on another level, I mean, to me, that's quality of life. That's like enrichment. That's like 
being in flow. And to me, the part of what next economy is, is that we're living on this level where we're not just survival. We're not just living in a transactional world. We're not just like selling. You're not just, gr- not just grinding it out each time. Yeah, yeah. yeah you're not just living and selling the widgets and buying the widgets, but you're <laughs> <laughs> connecting. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, I mean, there, there are a lot of ideas packed into the, into what you just said. I mean, the I certainly experienced in, in for me, in the musical sphere of trying to get better, you know, going from being a musical kid and then taking on the challenge of learning more difficult repertoire. How you learn more difficult repertoire is not just by practicing more. Certainly, you're going to be practicing more. You're, there, there is going to be a quantitative shift in the amount of time you spend. But there, there had better be also a qualitative shift in how clearly you listen to what you're doing when you practice and your ability to to actually take the music and break it down in different ways and reassemble it in different ways. You're not just sitting down and trying to bang out the notes in the right order over and over again and hoping for that to result in in a really nice performance. It doesn't result in a really nice performance generally. And for me, it, it tended towards uh, an injury, actually. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people in the realm of using their bodies throughout their lives, everybody has a sort of a, an arc for their, of their life. They may have been athletic when they were younger, and then they don't play sports in their middle age, and then they try to get back to it. Or whatever their particular arc in life is, most people are simply living out of the habits that they developed when they were children. Yeah. Now, these these habits are not just habits of movement. Mm. They're also habits of attention. There are ways that they're actually psychological grooves and attentional grooves and intentional grooves that you don't realize that you're you are using you're leaning on to get you through each of the moments of your day, each of the days of your month, each of the, the years of your life. And unless you actually stop and examine how those habits are actually built or assembled, it's really easy to be frustrated. It's really easy to have that same experience over and over again of, oh, I just can't hit a good overhead serve in tennis. Or, and, and usually what happens for, for people is if they're lucky enough to make contact with a really good teacher, a really compassionate teacher, in a, in a nice context where the teacher isn't abusive and the teacher is knowledgeable and the tennis camp that they went to actually happens to be kind of a fun place, the kid can actually have a a moment of change, a moment of improvement where they really, they find out something about themselves that they didn't know that they were capable of. And of course, that's the satisfying story of growth. But for a lot of us, we we just don't realize the degree to which we're living out of habits that we developed at a very young age and often before we could talk, really. Yeah, and I would say... Do you agree with this? Am I taking this too far? That it's a, a transactional, it's seeing your body as a machine kind of things that we've inherited? Yeah. I, I mean, you, you don't realize, most of us don't realize the extent to which the environment that you grow up in plays a rather definitive role. It's not, it's not the whole ball of wax. Genetics plays a, you know, a big part of it. But the environment you grow up in, not just, I don't just mean whether or not your your parents could afford skis, so you went skiing, or everybody in your neighborhood played hockey. That's that that's that was the currency of, of your high school was whether or not you played hockey or not. Those things are important. But it's also whether you grew up in a in a house where 
physical contact was okay, was safe, was encouraging. Or what, maybe you grew up in a house of nerds that just read books all day long. Nobody ever played any sports. How, how would you be picking up sports if you weren't around people playing sports? It's, it's unusual. Or maybe you were in a family that spent a lot of time in the outdoors, that hiked and camped and cooked your own food, and you learned those kinds of independent skills. The factors with which we grow up, we are not terribly aware of them at the time. No, you know, you don't really choose the family that you're, that you're born into. And you learn later when you reflect back on it. Oh, oh, yes, that's that's true. Everybody in my house did play music a lot. Like for me, I had two older brothers, both of whom were very musical. My parents both sang in the church choir. My dad used to play drums in a Dixieland band when he was when he was in college. And so enjoying music was part of what I grew up with. It's not like they were professional musicians. But music was to be valued in my house to some degree. And that's part of why I think I'm musical. My grandfather happened to be a child violinist. He played on the radio in Los Angeles back in the uh, when he grew up in the, you know, the turn of the century or, or whenever it was. And it's not like I grew up where my family was all playing music together. But music was a big part of what made us turn on in, in my house. But most people are not necessarily aware of the movement and coordination skills that they have until they encounter a problem. Like okay. if you've ever played basketball in the park with a bunch of kids, you know, just like a pickup game with a bunch of kids and the two kids that are going to be the captains of the team, they pick the other kids. You, know, you pick who's going to be on which team. OK, what are those two captains doing? Do they know how everybody plays basketball? No, they're making little momentary assessments of who looks athletic versus who looks really shy and maybe a little uncoordinated. And these things yeah. play out in real life, you know. Right. And I want to make sure because I know that a lot of our listeners might not play an instrument. They might not be into sports, but it's it's also, but everyone has a body <laughs> and everyone, we're all using our bodies in different capacities. And to me, it's about how are we inhabiting what I've gotten from Feldenkrais is how are we inhabiting those moments? Like, is there a different quality of connection that I can have that enriches those moments so that I'm just not not even aware of my body until something's not working? And that yeah. that actual connection is not only enriching, but it, it, it actually makes my participation in life more full and even more effective. But I feel like I'm talking about it. And I think you have some exercises that might help someone have an embodied experience of what we're talking about so that we're not just describing, what are you saying, Phoenix? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So before we do a practical demonstration, and this will be something that your listeners can do sitting at their desk, or we'll do something in a chair just because it's mostly convenient. I think it's useful to talk about how Feldenkrais is actually taught to people in the public. Feldenkrais really is a movement methodology, but it happens to combine a certain quality of attention with the movements. Now, in, in traditional exercise, it's not that you don't pay any attention to what you're doing when you're exercise, but when you go to the gym and you, you run on the treadmill, you're in a context of effort. And in fact, most of the benefits that you get from exercise really flow from the effort that you make. Mm -hmm. Some people are fantastic in their bodies. And when they're at the gym, you're just like, wow, look, look at her go or look at him go. He, she's really well organized or really well coordinated. But for a lot of people, when they go to the gym, 
the context of effort actually makes it hard for them to coordinate themselves better. Hmm. Making an effort has certain creates certain sort of uh, neurological noise in the system. And the, the higher the level of effort you put out, the less sensitive you actually are to the little uh, the little nuances of what you're doing. It's something you can actually look up. There's a, there's a law called the Weber-Fechner law, or it's sometimes called the law of just noticeable difference. And the law really measures biologically how your sensitivity to change in a stimulus, given what the background stimulus is. So the example would be if you're if you were carrying a, an air conditioner, it's a pretty heavy object, right? And I put a little paperback book on top of the air conditioner. You're probably not going to feel that the air conditioner got that much heavier, right? Because the book doesn't weigh enough to make enough of a difference. However, if you were carrying a uh, you know an envelope and I put the same paperback book on top of the envelope, you'd notice, hey, this you know it's it's a it's a big difference with with the two things. And with movement and physical effort, the same thing is true. And this is one of the reasons why in the Feldenkrais method, we really, one of the strategic things we use is we ask people to really slow things down. We ask them to slow the function down because when you slow down and you go more gently, number one, it's it's simply safer. But number two, you actually are more sensitive to the nuances of what you're doing. And if your if your project is to actually learn how to be more coordinated, well then you're interested in details. You're not interested in force or just pure output of effort. It's not a performance context. It's really a context of learning and discriminating what you're doing. And so this this particular fact about Feldenkrais is part of what really makes it unique is we're interested in this very carefully strategically composed context where you can become much more sensitive to what you're doing than usual. This is what makes the improvements feel so magical or simple when they do happen. Because by actually reducing the general amount of effort, you learn faster. This is not a secret, right? You talk to any musician who has spent time getting good on their instrument, they're going to tell you about the miracle of slow practice. Mm. listening to a Beethoven concerto practiced very slowly is not, it's not like going to a concert hall and hearing the performance. It's not a musically exciting experience because it's not for the audience. It's for the performer. There's a, there's a period of time at which they really have to slow everything down so they can assemble all the details neurologically in their system to be able to perform it later at a much higher level. And the Feldenkrais method really exploits this particular feature of the human nervous system. And it's a big reason why when people see classes performed or they see videos, they say, oh, Feldenkrais, yeah, they do everything really slowly. Huh, that's really boring. It's, it's not an Instagram ready kind of practice because the whole point is it's not performative. It's meant to create a situation where you can feel things that ordinarily you can't feel. And I want to stop you there because that's radical. It's that's very radical. Because I know that there's a way that sometimes I feel like I get through my day by not being uh, paying attention. I get cramped up. I'm on the computer and I'm just trying to get any done. And then at the end of the day, my wrist might be hurting or all this stuff. And you feel like that's part of life. And then, of course, you ignore your body and then you, your body eventually has a big consequence to that. And we're learning all the time where the models we're seeing is that kind of driven lifestyle. And 
there's lots of reasons why it is, but what you're talking about, which is slowing down and paying attention and noticing the quality of how I am with myself is it's, it's really going against the grain. Yeah, it, it really is because you're, you're deliberately retreating from a performance mm-hmm. mindset. The average person, I mean, I used to teach, I used to teach ergonomics and I used to teach, I used to sneak in certain Feldenkrais principles to, I used to consult for the New York Times. I worked with somebody who was a consultant for the Times and we did all this ergonomic consulting for the, for them and for the Dallas Morning News. And so we worked with people that spent all day at their desks, the advertising department, the classified department, those people are just on the phone all day long, cradling the phone with their shoulder and their necks were a mess and they're unhappy. And so they were... The conversation was, can we get them adjustable chairs and desks and all that sort of stuff? But also a big chunk of that was actually reteaching many of them how to type. And I don't mean they had to be told where the letters were. It wasn't It wasn't like that. It was literally about how they learned to coordinate themselves at the keyboard. And people were actually shocked, A, that there was that this was an avenue in which they needed to improve. And B, that once they learned how to how to not use so much force and how not to lean on their wrists when they're tight, all these all these sorts of details, they're actually shocked to discover that the the pain that they're so used to living with actually starts to lift. Because what you describe, you know, your your wrists get tired or your back gets tired in sitting, that's a skill issue. Hmm. That's what that is. I mean, it happens to all of us. We all get absorbed in the work we're doing on the computer, we're spending long hours in front of a screen. But to be able to sit comfortably, that's a skill. Mm. I see in the popular media now, you know, sitting is the new smoking, you know, like sitting is is bad for you. And of course, yes, sitting in one place without a break for many hours. Yes, it, it is not good. But it really depends how you do it. Yeah. The, yes, if you sit in a certain disorganized way, the mass of your torso, it becomes a burden on you. And the way you're supporting yourself is not good. And over time certain very nasty little experiences keep happening and they get more and more consistent. But again, it's a skill issue. Do you know how to sit? Most people, if you ask them that question, they just laugh. Of course I know how to sit. Look at me. I'm in a chair. I didn't fall over once during this whole conversation. Apparently I know how to sit. But the truth is, is that there are a few fine details that they're, that they're missing that actually are part of what contributes to this experience of their back hurting and it's it's not always just a quick fix. There really is a kind of a learning process you have to go through. But once a person engages in that, you really can sort of take away these, these nagging little things that tend to snowball into something bigger later in life. And it's worth doing. It's really worth doing. All, my pianistic problems showed up in my hand, my hand, the tendonitis in my forearm. It showed up in my hand. I can tell you now, 20, 30, 40 years later, the problem was not really in my hand. Mm-hmm. The problem was in my pelvis. The problem was the way I sat. The problem was how I did and did not support the weight of my spine on the piano bench. And I didn't really know how to move my pelvis. And I didn't really know how to support my spine very well. I just played the piano as best I could. And most of the advice I got from teachers, very well intentioned, most of their advice started at the elbow and ended at the fingers. I can tell you the sum total of all the advice I got about sitting at the piano. Okay, sit up, sit up, sit up, sit straight. That's, yeah, have your shoulders a little back. Okay, good. Okay, now let's get into Chopin. Oh, so that's the total advice of sitting. 
And I can tell you, there's a there's a world of understanding how sitting actually works and how moving in sitting actually works. And it's really worth understanding it, right? Because we do it all the time. Because you do it's it's an activity you're doing all. It's like walking. I have a series of audio lessons on on walking. It's about eighteen hour. It's an eighteen hour course. Although you can you can come into any other, any parts of it and use different lessons. I've done that. I've done one of them. Walking is something you have to admit, you're really going to want to do it for as long as possible. I have had the good fortune to meet certain clients over the couple decades that I've worked where they're coming into my office towards the end of their lives. They're coming in as they're losing the ability to walk. And they're wanting to improve their walking after decades of doing it a certain way. Okay. Mm -hmm. You don't want to be that person. You want to take the time to be a young 40, 50-year-old or 30-year-old or 20-year-old. You want to understand that while you can spontaneously walk without a problem, you're you're good at it. It's also worth understanding how walking actually works and what the good ideas about it are and what the not-so-great ideas about it are so that you can sort that out for yourself. So you can be the 90-year-old woman who's still, she's she's good. She's She still goes to the dance floor when she wants to. She can stand up and cook. Because to be the 60-year-old who can barely stand at their own counter and chop vegetables, because even standing has become difficult, that's not anything, nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. And yet it's it's not uncommon for people. But it is, it, it, obviously there are medical issues and stuff like that, but a lot of it is a skill issue. You have to spend time understanding how coordination works, how standing works, how sitting works how rolling to get out of bed works, how climbing stairs can work. These are very valuable things. And Feldenkrais Method actually has a methodology that makes it fun to learn how to improve these things. Yeah. As you're talking, I can't help but see the relationship that we live in a society where we have climate change. We've been, you know, oh, it's not a big deal throwing something out in the trash. But what we understand is that all of this stuff has accumulates, you know, you keep putting things into the atmosphere and oh, guess what? It starts to impact you. And then the things that you do for your body, oh, it doesn't hurt right now. It's fine. But then you're not aware. And it's it totally makes sense that you're not aware because you're not taught. We're not we're not you're, not encu- you're not encouraged to be. Yeah, it, it, it's very much like the frog in the slow boiling water. You know, the climate change metaphor where the, the frog's in the water. And if you, as long as you just turn the temperature up very slowly, the frog doesn't realize until it's too late, they're in boiling water. A lot of overuse injuries and, and issues of coordination, these things work the same way. The, these issues get embedded in the way you are. Mm, yeah. They just, the, the habits are so deeply embedded in, in the, the way you simply use yourself how you turn your head, the way you sit in your car for long drives, all these kinds of things. These are things that nobody really wants to think about. They're not exciting or sexy, but they they really speak to a certain knowledge about yourself that is worth knowing. Mm. It's really worth knowing how to sit. I, I have clients who come to me who really need help sitting and they want to talk about chairs. What kind of chair should I get? And they say, what kind of chair do you have? And I, I'm sitting on it, man. I sit on a wooden stool all day long. I move people's limbs and torsos. I, I lift heavy weight with, with working with clients. But I use a simple wooden stool. And the way I succeed is that I really understand what I'm doing as I sit and as I move. There is no magic chair that is going to make you sit well. You, you want to have a chair that's well-made and adjustable, of course. But that's like saying, my driving is horrible. 
what kind of car should I buy to make myself drive better? You can get a Ferrari, you can get a Lamborghini, you can get a BMW. Those cars are not going to make you more aware of the coordination between your feet and the steering wheel. Like they're, they're actual skills that are worth, that are really worth delving into. Oh, and I think this is a good segue. You were going to give us a short Feldenkrais lesson. Sure. So let's do something in sitting. So for those, for the listeners who are, who are sitting in a chair, or if, if you're standing, go ahead and sit yourself in a chair and have both feet firmly on the floor. And what we're going to do is just, it's a very short and simple uh, demonstration, but also exploration. You don't need to see a visual example. The instructions are going to be fairly whispered into your ear here. Okay. All you need to do is be able to hear the instructions and use them in the way you pay attention to your own movements. So sit comfortably on a relatively flat chair, right? Not something with a, with a bucket seat or tilting way back. And place your hands to rest on your thighs. And take a moment just to breathe so that you have some degree of presence with the essential biological function of breathing. And inside of the breaths that you take, you can also release a little bit the weight of your arms and your shoulders so that you're not unnecessarily hiking them up towards your head. You can feel that the hands rest calmly on the thighs. Now, the movement you're going to begin with is a very simple movement, and it's basically to lift your head slowly as if you wanted to see the ceiling. And you're going to do this much more slowly than you ordinarily would. The mistake that most of us make when we hear instructions is we try to start out, we try to start the movement as soon as possible, and too many of us go as fast as possible. Take your time and really enjoy the fact that as your face lifts up to the ceiling, you can feel how the back of your neck is getting a little shorter as the front of your throat gets a little bit longer. Yes? And, and here, as you lift your head, you're really encouraged to only go as far as you feel comfortable. In other words, you're not looking for the point of strain. You're not looking for the moment when you contort yourself and you hold your breath. You're not interested in this. You're only interested in the range that feels simple and comfortable for you to do. Good. So after having done this four or five times simply, you're going to have a sense of how high the head lifts without any strain in it. Now, the next thing you're gonna do is actually different than moving your head, but it's gonna inform the way you understand how to organize the movement of the head. Take your hands and place them on the front of your pelvis or the sides of your pelvis, sort of picture your pelvis as kind of like a, a bowl of soup. And you can place your hands on the the outer rim of the pelvis along the sides or in the front, just somewhere where you can feel the kind of the bony ridge that runs around the bottom of the waist. And just rest your hands there so that they can, they can feel clearly without trying to, to grip or to hold on too much. Because now you're going to make a very, again, a very simple, a very smooth movement where you're going to roll your pelvis gently forward. Now, again, really do less than you tend to want to do. Make the movement slow enough 
that you really can feel that as the pelvis rocks forward a little bit, the top of your pelvis actually does move forward and your belly actually gets a little larger and a little longer. And the very front of your pelvis, that's your pubic bone, right where the zipper of your pants might be. The pubic bone, as part of this movement of the pelvis, the pubic bone angles down in between your two thighs as if it was angling down away from your head a little bit. That's nice. Now you'll notice that because the pelvis is right in the center of your body, you don't just move your pelvis the way you would move or wiggle a finger, right? The pelvis is attached to your spine. So you can probably feel that as the pelvis rocks a little bit forward, your lower back is gently going to arch a little bit. Now this means that the vertebrae in your lower back, they're going to gently rise and come forward a little. And if you go slow enough, and you, if you listen to the process of the movement, rather than trying to just produce the movement, you're going to notice that as the pelvis rocks forward, your chest, the sternum, the breastbone, might actually be able to lift a little bit. Mm. Not because you force it, but because there's something about the way the pelvis is moving that creates a shape through the spine and promotes this lifting of the chest. That's right. Good, now having done this five or 10 times, just come back to sit more or less where you began and let your hands rest on your legs. And once again, as you lift the head to see the ceiling, what is your pelvis deciding to do about it? In other words, your brain is aware that it just did a couple of different things. And when you return to the original movement of your head, what do you include in the movement of your pelvis? What do you include down there that has anything to do or that informs or synergizes with the raising of your face to see the ceiling? Now, you may notice that timing those two things together actually works a little better. Or you may be a little confused. You may be like, I don't get it. I, I don't know what you mean. I, I'm just kind of rocking forward on my pelvis and I'm trying to lift my head, but I don't feel much difference. So now return to the middle and now keep your head on the horizon. Just look out in front of you at the wall in front of you. And now do not, do not lower your head. Keep your head right where it is and rock your pelvis a little bit backwards. Go in the opposite direction. And go slow enough that you're aware of the change in the muscle tension in the back of your neck. Because when the pelvis rocks back, it changes the foundations. It changes the soil in which the, the vine of your spine is planted. It literally does change all sorts of muscular synergies. It changes the contact you have with the chair. And this changes the muscular requirements on keeping your head on the horizon. Now, keep your head on the horizon and roll the pelvis a little bit forward a few times. Don't raise your face to the ceiling. Don't lower it down to the floor. But listen to the change in the shape of your neck that starts to emerge as you roll the pelvis forward. 
Can you feel how the weight of your head on your spine starts to get a little bit lighter when you roll the pelvis a little bit forward? And can you feel how the weight of the head gets a little heavier on the spine when you rock the pelvis backward? Now, this ability to sense the difference between how the head feels when the pelvis goes one way versus the other, this is the kind of neuromuscular learning that's embedded in every Feldenkrais lesson. You can't actually perform better just because somebody tells you, do it like this. You actually need an experimental context where you can feel the difference for yourself so that you start to see the choices that are available to you. And the choices are part of the feature set of your body and your neurology. Now, the next time you want to raise your head to see the ceiling, go ahead and raise your head, rock your pelvis forward, and lift your chest a little higher this time. Yes. Now, keep your head looking up at the ceiling. Keep your head lifted. Don't change where you're seeing with your eyes. Keep your, keep your head fixed, but slowly rock your pelvis backward. And notice the moment when keeping your head up like this is starting to get a little harder, yeah? Because you're trying to understand the relationship between the bottom, the organization of the bottom of the spine, and the organization of the top, where your head is. And by doing this, by exploring the relationship, without trying to just get it right, but instead by really having a rather an investigative approach, you start to learn the timing, the orientation, the manipulations that you need to make that actually produce a less effortful quality in the movement. How many people do you know, they sit at their chair at the desk, and when they look up to see the clock, to see what time it is, the clock's up in the corner, and they lift their head up, but they don't move the pelvis at all. They just strain the neck to pick the head up and go see over there to see if it's time, is it time for lunch yet, yeah? That's a very different experience than if you actually roll the pelvis forward and to the right and the head lifts up and to the right to help the, the lift, or if you go up and to the left, that you actually coordinate your base to support the trajectory of your head. This is something every athlete knows how to do, but we also want the benefits of the coordination in a non-athletic context too, where so many of the aches and pains tend to, tend to grow and take, take root for us. Yeah. So this is just a very, very simple and short example. The kind of exploratory investigation that we do in aware, it's called awareness through movement is the name of the practice. And the lessons are typically structured 45 minutes or so, but they can be done in much shorter doses too. But the idea is to really use the context of movement to coordinate a much better quality of coordination. Because you're, you're actually learning how to be sensitive to movement. You're actually learning a vocabulary of movement and sensation. And you're learning the link between the two. Most people, unless they, they go to take a glass of water from you and they accidentally drop it on the floor, okay, there they know something got poorly coordinated. But unless they could have the glass land in their hand okay and they still their back is all contorted or whatever, it's just fine. They feel like everything's fine. They don't necessarily have a greater understanding or a greater uh, value system for what more refined coordination feels like. 
And it's really beneficial to understand a range of, of coordination. I don't just mean range of movement, but to really have a, a kind of a scale of being able to do the same activity in a kind of a crummy way and then a not so crummy way and then a more refined way and then a truly refined way. And so you you actually have a, a an array of abilities with yourself. Yeah, I'm really interested in that sensitivity because what I also notice is that I'm not just moving my head differently, but there's a different connection I have to my body. And it's something that's not like when I do exercise, it's very functional. Can I do this movement in a way that is performing it exactly the way it's supposed to? Whereas this, it's a, it's a experience. It's like a process. And then there's a, an internal sense of connection. Like someone looking at me, they might see more grace from comparing me from the end to the beginning, but where the difference is, is in how it feels inside. Yeah, you're not really constructing what you're doing according to some external authority. You're yeah. not, you know, there's no teacher in the front of the room saying, do it like this, everybody, you know, and then you're all trying to do what the teacher can do. That's very common in certain exercise contexts. The teacher is demonstrating the yoga pose because you're, you want a good model for what is this pose supposed to look like. However, in the Feldenkrais method, we sometimes we demonstrate if there's confusion, but in general, we we kind of we kind of eschew the demonstration model, just because what's more important is that you're paying attention to yourself, the, yeah. and, the, and the lessons are actually structured in a way. They're very carefully structured. They're like they're structured like a theme and variations approach, so that as you go through the lesson you start to assemble more and more coherent information for yourself so that you're you're actually learning to trust your own body experience i mean what what you said a moment ago it's not just that i'm lifting my head different but i feel my my whole body is actually moving well that's right i mean to move your spine well you're moving a lot of mass when you move your spine well you're not sitting still sitting still leads to a kind of rigidity right it's okay to sit still if you know what you're doing, but when you have to reach for the phone or reach for the stapler or go to stand up, you really want to have an appreciation for how all this stuff works together elegantly, not because you're going to be an Olympic high jumper, but because you're a person and you want to, you want to have an elegant experience of yourself, right? Yeah. 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 So a lot of these things are, what you're saying, it's, it's, it's really true. You're, you're really learning to build your own image of movement from your perspective. You're using the words and the instructions in the lesson, but they're not meant to function like an external authority. You know, you go on Instagram, you'll, you'll see nothing, nothing but a sea of prescriptions. Yeah. Do, do your seated rows like this. Do your, do your toe touches like that. The squat has to look like this. And of course there's nothing wrong with understanding what better form looks like in the context of weightlifting. It's really important. However, you really want to understand the difference between just watching something and kind of being entertained or slightly being interested versus actually teaching yourself how it's done. Those are two actually very different things. Yeah. And I relate to this because what I do is I help with people with communication and collaboration. And I'm always trying to get people to be more sensitive to themselves because self-connection is the basis for being able to communicate. And I tell people that when they're having a conflict in their workplace, 
even a small tension, if you can start to handle a tension at a two, <laughs> when it's Absolutely. easy, when it's not a huge, actually that's better, but we learn disregarded. That's what a, a maturity is, is that you ignore those things and you just let it go. But then what happens is that it happens again because you didn't address it. And why would it? They didn't know. That's right. That's right. Some, <laughs> some people have no conversational hygiene, right? It's, it's like the same as, you know, your dental hygiene. Like a lot of people, they don't like to go to the dentist. So they wait and they wait and they wait. By the time they get to the dentist, this tooth has been rotting in their head for, for months. And the dentist says, why didn't you come back then? Oh, I was embarrassed or, you know, whatever the reason was. But it's, you know, Feldenkrais can really function like that for people. It's, it's also, it's, it's kind of like a movement hygiene, right? And you're, you're learning how to take care of this body that you're hopefully going to have for a very long time. And there are ways to take care of it that are like exercise. The exercise is very, very important. And there's, there's almost nothing that's been researched that apparently has more benefits to it than exercise. But exercise, because of the high effort context, it is risky. And some people really need a smoother on-ramp into exercise. And for them to jump right in when they, they, they're out of shape or they're, they're fairly decompensated and they're not, you know, for them to just, okay, damn it, I'm going to join the gym and I'm going to go, that is not a great idea for them. What they need is a much smoother, more compassionate on-ramp where they really understand the principles of coordination and they can apply it in any context they want in the gym, out of the gym, at home, climbing the stairs, whatever they want. It's that hygienic function that it performs so that, like you said, in the moment, we've all had the experience of you're climbing the stairs to get to class and your knee suddenly goes, uh-oh, and you don't feel good. So what do you do? Just ignore it. Just ignore it. Just get to class. It'll be fine. Well, you ask some people how that little strategy plays out. It doesn't play out too well. And what you want is a, an intelligent body that knows what to do with that kind of information in the moment, right? Yeah. It doesn't freak out about it, but also knows how to address it. Maybe that night they go home and they do a little, they do a little lesson. So they're, they're taking care of it. Right. And that's I mean, some of it is about having the tool. And like I said, that sensitivity, but I, I, I also imagine that there's some people who might never try Feldenkrais. I of course encourage you to to do so. But I I feel like the nugget that I want people to get even if they is that nugget about the beauty of sensitivity because I think that's the thing that gets lost in our world where there's so much rush, there's so much happening, information overload, stressful lives, families don't get the support they need. All of these things is that it gets overwhelming and we want to numb out. And what we're talking about, I mean, I do it more around communication and community and is how do we create spaces for you to be sensitive? Like if you've been shutting down from your body because of chronic pain and someone's telling you, okay, we want you to be more sensitive. That's a hard pill to take sometimes. That's right. <laughs> and and it's, a, it's a difficult navigation to pull off sometimes because again, if, if people... You know, people are suffering with all kinds of uh, mental health things or, or anxiety, or they've had traumatic experiences in their lives. And this stuff kind of pervades any attempt that they make to, to try different things to improve. You know, people go and try meditation and they, they can't do it. They just can't sit quietly or they, they hear that they're supposed to let their thoughts quiet down. And they're, they let you know, my thoughts do not quiet down. It's just like I'm sitting with a, with a sports broadcaster just going on and on and on. But these are, again, these are skills that we need to learn. You need to learn how to regulate your experience. 
And Feldenkrais is, is, is rather interesting in terms of where it sits on the continuum of these practices. I tend to see it like, you know, exercise is kind of at one end of the continuum. It's, it's very heavy on effort, right? You can think about exercise all you, all you want, but you're, you ain't getting any benefits without putting in the actual effort to go running or to go lift weights or whatever your, your particular uh, jam is. On the other end of the continuum, you have something like meditation, which is extremely low physical effort, but is focused on the, the space of mental activity, right? Feldenkrais sits somewhere in between because we actually, we're interested in movement we, and we use movement patterns and, and coordination challenges and things like this. But we're also interested in developing a certain quality of attention to what we're doing. We, we're actually pretty convinced that the the attention is actually more important than the movement. That as soon as you prioritize performing the movement, you're you're off you're off on a you're in a different you're in a different context. Your, your ability to really learn to put these things together has something to do with the way you attend and use the information that's that is built into movement. And it's just that people are often not in a context where this is okay. They're usually in a context where they got to keep up. The music's pumping. The teacher is saying, come on, let's pedal for, you know, they're in a very performative context. Or if they're in a more meditative context, you're not really dealing with movement in meditation. You're, you're not dealing with the basics of coordination and balance and things like this. And so Feldenkrais offers a context where there really is a blend of action it is an action oriented. We are interested in action. We just we just like to slow the action down. But there's there's action, there's attention, there's also time for reflection. You know, this little five-minute demonstration that I, I gave you, it of course is just something short and just a little taste. But in a typical lesson, there really is a balance between making a few movements and then stopping and resting. Why? Because we're worried you're gonna get tired? No, I don't think you're gonna get tired moving very slowly. But your attention needs a break. Your, your attention needs to learn how to rest. You need to learn how to return your quality of attention to raise it and lower it as you need. And it's almost like there's an executive function element to what goes on in an awareness through movement lesson and in the context of Feldenkrais, because there is this blend of attention to the movement. And, and they're seen as really they're both necessary. Your mind and body, you know, it drives us crazy. We you know, make the mind-body connection. How many times have you heard that in the popular media? There is no connection to make. Those two things have never been separate, ever. They're just separate in conversation. And some techniques lean heavily on what they think is the awareness or the mind part. And the other techniques lean really heavily on the, on the body part. The truth is your neurology demands both. Movement and coordination, they provide information. They are a source of information. And so is the quality of your attention. The question is whether you can be in a context where that's really leveraged. Well, you are. there's so many rich things that you're saying that I would love to explore. And I, I imagine some of our readers would like to know more and be able to explore more of, about your work. I know that I've really gotten so much out of your body of knowledge website where you have a lot of these lessons that people can download some for beginners and and then it'll take you all the way up to the different kinds of uh, more advanced exploration and it's helped me get into a different mode with myself and to help me like start to explore oh wow I didn't know that I could now start to 
know when I'm sitting. Like when I started, it would just be magical and I really couldn't make the connections. But now I'm like, oh my God, I know that if I do this kind of movement, it'll have this kind of impact. And that stuff that I do with my legs impact the things in my shoulders. Yeah. (laughs) That's great to hear. Yeah. I mean, there really is a way in which you go from being, I think most of us are passively literate in movement. Mm. You know how to walk across the room and get a get a, get more paper for the printer and come back. You you have a basic idea of how movements the, the movements you need to make. Studying Feldenkrais really gives you a much more active literacy in how those things work and how to like you said how to make yourself more comfortable in the moment. How to make the adjustments you need to make during your day. How to use the quality of your attention to what you're doing to actually make it useful to make your attention not just ugh. I noticed this is hurting, but what can I actually do about it in the moment? And there turns out to be quite a few things that that you can do. Yeah, so my website is bodyofknowledge.me is the is the website address. And for several years, I've run an online course there where I teach I teach live and also give people access to the recordings. And I, I've tended to structure the material really around series of lessons, series that have functional themes, themes like uh, walking, rolling being in lunge position, different things that have sort of familiar exercise, you know, uh, quality to it, but also just coordinate coordination themes, uh, using the eyes, the use of the hands, things like this, that people uh, very often they want targeted work with. And they want to, they want a series of lessons that provides a kind of a coherence that tells a good story and that helps them sort of progress through a series of lessons rather than just dropping in one at a time. That's the real advantage of having all these online resources. But I'm in the process now of uh, myself and two other colleagues. We're we're going to be releasing a full-on iPhone and uh, Android app that'll combine a couple of different libraries of awareness through movement uh, lessons and also intellectual and scientific material about the scientific and cultural and intellectual roots of the methods, so that people have that kind of material to support them in their practice. And that'll that'll probably come out. We're in the beta testing stage now, but hopefully by uh, by this spring. Fingers crossed, it'll it'll come out, and that's uh, that'll be at the website Feldenkrais first. Oh, okay, Feldenkrais first, bodyofknowledge.me, and that's also where they people can contact you on your website. Yeah, you can contact me through the website. I'm just I I live in New York, and I I teach in I have a practice in Manhattan and also in Long Island. So, ah, oh, well, it's been lovely talking with you, and thank you for your work. <laughs> Well, thank you, Phoenix. It's it's really nice to have this conversation and to see how you're you guys are pulling these different strings together, different different kinds of businesses, different kinds of approaches to creating a slightly a slightly more healing atmosphere for the for the culture because it boy does it need it. Next Economy Now is a production of Lift Economy. To listen to all of our episodes, go to lifteconomy.com slash podcast. That's L-I-F-T economy.com slash podcast. You can also sign up for our monthly newsletter at lifteconomy.com slash newsletter. Please also rate and review our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.